is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw and I was just listening to the show <laughs> that was on the air before I came on. What a hoot. Oh golly 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 how I love the discussions of religion. May I recommend to you um, a one woman comedy by Erica Lan Clark. Last name is L-A-N-N hyphen Clark, C-L-A-R-K, that's over at the marsh called Shopping for God. And it's still playing, let's see, she told me six Sundays, but I can't remember how many Sundays ago that was. So call the marsh in San Francisco. Uh, there's an 800 number, 1-800-838-3006. I'm sure it's on information or it's... Uh, themarsh.org, Shopping for God. It's an hilarious one-woman uh, monologue. It's it's just this trip about, uh, what is that, our spiritual quest, you know. <laughs> this one is a comedy. There's a, I'm looking at the, the publicity, and there's a huge, um, there's a picture of that huge woman, the Venus of Willendorf, you know, the, the one. It doesn't really have a face and says red tag sale right there across her pudenda. Yeah, okay. Anyway, she's over at the marsh and I saw it when it was here in Berkeley and, uh, it's a wonderful synthesis of all the confusions that we have. So many of us, people like me, uh, we can never decide. I think mostly it's about language. Um, when people ask if I believe in God, I always say, well, I certainly believe in metaphor. Uh, it's a difficult one. Uh, what fascinates me um, is the fact that most people think that we've made progress in religion. I see it the opposite way. I think of the the ancients, the pagans, as the enlightened ones. We seem to have become the narrow-minded uh, monotheists, you know, the, the one-god folks. I think of that early monotheist, uh, uh, the Egyptian Akhenaten. There's a wonderful um, picture I used to have in the classroom. It's uh, I think it's... Uh, fresco or it's a wall phrase it's a, a portrait of Akhenaten he's worshipping the sun S-U-N Aton and his wife is about 
up to his thigh, well, his uh, waist, and she's worshiping him, and then the children all, you know, in adult proportions, but the little children are then worshiping uh, both of them, but, you know, it's a perfect orderly hierarchy, the king thing. And, of course, you know, the human structure, the human uh, system is made exactly the way the uh, uh, the heavenly one is. I, I was watching the last episode of Rome this past weekend. I'm in deep grief and mourning because my favorite TV show is over, 22 glorious episodes, and... They have a great deal to say in that show about religion. Sends a mythomaniac like me back to all my books and uh, uh, even my college courses in comparative religion, you know, trying to sort it all out. And what I think Rome teaches, I hope the students will have a chance to see it. Uh, I don't know, the pornography will probably keep it out of the classroom. It isn't pornographic, there's just some nudity. But... uh uh I think it teaches the fact that, um, you know, human nature is always the same and religion serves the same purpose in every age. The, what would you call it, the literalists, the absolutists, uh, people who lived, what is that, uh, uh, in that time, they, they're just as fundamentalist in many ways as uh, people are today. And I, I think what what I got a kick out of was it wasn't just the lower orders. Caesar's wife um, is also, um, you know, what do you call it? I, as I said, I, I think it's 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 this. She, she's a, let's think of her as high church. All she's interested in is the correct forms. Uh, when she meets the head augur, the, the priest, uh, she wants to know the right things to do, whereas Caesar, who is a smart, uh, sophisticated type, he just bribes the <laughs> the headman so the birds fly the right way, you know, and he gets his um, uh, he gets his uh, triumph. Uh, he manipulates the religious shtick. Uh, now, what fascinates me is not not just the, the hypocrisy behind religious institutions. Uh, I think. It is, what is it? It's a play, a ritual. Uh, I don't know, actually, whether we're hardwired uh, to be religious. I think that we all seek, um, seek what is that meaning. Uh, we seek also uh, our parent, a loving parent. I think of the Titans, actually, as our parents hovering around the crib, you know, and then they grow more sophisticated and you get... Uh, you get the the demigods. Um, it's all symbols. Check out Carl Jung's book, Man and His Symbols. I always like to use that for students, for uh, school children, because there's this problem, you know, when you raise this subject. People who have been given an orthodox interpretation of Christianity are always uncomfortable if you tell them that there's nothing new about their religion. Uh, there are lots of texts on the pagan origins of the Christ story. And uh, it doesn't have to be an either-or situation. I think uh, if people want to be good Christians, all they need to do is be inclusive and say that all of this stuff, you know, all of these uh, ancient tales, 
uh, were, uh, what you call that, rehearsals uh, <laughs> for their Christ consciousness. Uh, the Joseph Campbell series on television, I thought that would change everything and that everybody would say, aha, now I get it. It's a universal. All the earth's religions have similar stories, of course, with much different costumes, you know. But there would be an end to all this, um, oh, what is it, the petty differences, you know, the sort of stuff that uh, Jonathan Swift <laughs> had to satirize. Uh, the, um, you know, the arguing over um, the shape and size of God. Uh, in Joseph Campbell's books, The Masks of God, you can find all that material, The Hero's Journey, but it's the background for all that stuff on Western mythology, our uh, our great warrior story. You know the story of um, the warrior who overcomes uh, his opponents. And then you get what I call progress. You get the update. Um, you get someone like um, Jesus Christ, a... Uh, a uh, sufferer, a sacrificer. Uh, my favorite source for today's um, New Agers is Maria Gambutas. Uh, she wrote The Civilization of the Goddess, Language of the Goddess. And she is not, she's not a uh, uh, theologist. She's an archaeologist. She dug it up. She was originally, she began studying the Bronze Age, um, She's a uh, digger, as I said, and she arrives, I, she once arrived in Berkeley with her slides and things, and there were all these uh, New Age <laughs> folks greeting her with drums and dancers in green gauze, and she pulled out all of her uh, academic scholarly stuff. It was a bit of a, bit of a lark. I, I got a kick out of it because what she has is um, these early artifacts of the ancient world, the really ancient world, you know, way back. She dug deeper than the Bronze Age and came up with ancestors, uh, well, let's call them the matrilineal uh, ancestors. Uh, it is so strange that people call that world primitive. It seems to me it's kind of like, you know, uh, babies who are born knowing everything and then they have to lose that information as they grow older. It's the same with um, humankind. Uh, the ancient people seemed to know intuitively what the gods are, that they are, uh, what you call it, uh, real and symbolic, that they are in nature. Uh, divinity is not invested in some single entity, some dude with a long white beard, that king thing, you know. Actually, the king thing is a perfect metaphor for egomaniacs, for popes and, uh, you know, um, oppressors, rulers. You know, they build these churches and cathedrals that, uh, while they are aesthetically quite lovely, you know, they're there to... Uh, express the power, the dominance of the rulers. Uh, even the Egyptians went in for that pharaoh business. Uh, I was watching the wonderful death scene of Anthony and Cleopatra. I hope I'm not giving away the story. You do remember that Anthony and Cleopatra were classic suicides. And uh, Anthony is uh, having one of his final orgies with his pal, uh, a Roman soldier. They're very, very Roman, these two. And they're making jokes together about the afterlife. 
And they're talking about the Greeks who would represent for them the, uh, uh, let's call it the, the intellectuals, uh, secular humanists, you know, today's sophisticates. And they are drunk and they don't want, what is it, they don't want to be reasonable. And so <laughs> Anthony's friend Varinus keeps saying, he uses a word I'm not allowed to say on the air, he keeps saying, you know, oh, what do you, you know, what do the Greeks know? F them, you know. Uh, sure, there's an afterlife. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a wonderful scene. I have to admit, I really teared up. Uh, I was surprised because I was waiting for some kind of Shakespearean language, and thank goodness the the uh, the writers didn't try any of that. Uh, you know, the last words of Cleopatra's handmaiden, uh, you know, was this well done of your lady, says the Roman soldier. And uh, Charmin says, uh, excellently well done, as befits the last um, descendant of so many rulers and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they let go of all that uh, stuff that has come down to us as uh, kind of formal, uh, almost, I think of it as, it's kind of like the Bible, you know, biblical, formal. What's happened now is uh, the writers have gone back and taken these stories and humanized them. And in a way, given them back their universality, their dignity, their terrific strength. Um, I was thinking what I would do now, <laughs> now that Rome has ended, I'm going to have to go back to my comparative religion stuff. Uh, I'll have to go back and look at some other shows I was thinking maybe I'll get I Claudius and check that out again I went uh, to my bookshelf and I got out Barbara Walker's Encyclopedia of Women's Myths and Secrets to consult about all these uh, these folks I got um, uh, oh I got uh, the Macedonian Greeks all about Cleopatra's heritage uh Yes, there's a couple of jokes in there about how she is a descendant of Alexander the Great. You know, sheep herders they were. That would be Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, about uh, three centuries before Cleopatra. Uh, there were, yes, the literalists back then. I think of the uh, one of the the wives of one of the the main characters in Rome. Uh, she is. Um, sweet, gentle lady. She's from north of the Rhine. Uh, I kind of, I like to place her somewhere near Poland, but I could be wrong. She says, no, please don't burn me. I want to, um, you know, I want to be buried. And she gives certain religious uh, instructions, rites, you know. And she is uh, the sort of person who obviously took her priest's word at face value, and she just did... Uh, what she thought was right, as we see people doing today. I I don't know. I made a list of all the things I've seen in the past that I thought I could go back. I was going to watch Angels in America again, watch Al Pacino as Roy Cohen, Meryl Streep as the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg. That's a wonderful, yes, um, what is it, story about justice. Uh Six Feet Under, Deadwood, there's so many. Um, I even watched Inherit the Wind last night because it deals with religiosity. You know, that was the one about the Scopes trial back in 1925. 
poor, poor Spencer Tracy old and ill and he and Frederick March go at it. Uh, all about uh, the role of religious fundamentalism in our history. It's funny that uh, it's here in America, the land of the free, that we would have this awful, awful uh, rebirth uh, of... Uh, not the old religion, let's call it, uh, let's call it, uh, it's what happened in the third century after the birth of Christ, uh, after the Gnostic people were um, put away, when the Orthodox folks came along and told us how Christianity was going to work and turned it into an absolutely absurd, nonsensical story. Uh, my favorite spins on uh, Christianity as practiced in the United States uh, <laughs> are those of Mark Twain. He uh, he was really, I would say, uh, a bitter man. They say that he broke his wife's heart because she was devout in a conventional way and uh, he disabused her, demystified uh, Christianity. Well, and they had lost their daughter, there was these deaths and so forth, but um, he wouldn't stand for it. Um, what I love, of course, is his take on sexuality, on gender, and he understood that modern Christianity uh, demanded the denigration of the female, the feminine, both symbolically and uh, literally. You know, the 19th century women were practically non-persons, had almost no rights. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, we began to see some little things, uh, Woman's Property Act, that kind of thing. Uh, like slavery, uh, they began to change the laws, uh, whether or not they actually put it into practice. Slavery certainly still practiced, although most people think that chattel slavery has ended. I would argue with that uh, footnote here. There's a movie out called Amazing Grace, which I can recommend. It's a pretty conventional film, but it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, portrait of the end of the slave trade. It was the British who outlawed the slave trade. Not not slavery. Slavery continued, but uh, they put an end to the trade on the high seas. You know, Wilberforce and those folks. The movie... Uh, opened a week or so ago. It's called Amazing Grace. And of course, it's that's from the song. You remember the ship's captain who uh, had second thoughts and became uh, a clergyman. He had been a slave trader, and he's responsible for the song Amazing Grace, uh, which has a history of its own. Anyway, check out that movie. It's the anniversary, I think it's 200 years now since the British outlawed slavery. And uh, this movie's come along in a perfect time for it. Uh, now, technically speaking, they have outlawed slavery for women, you know, but as we know, the trafficking in females, what used to be called uh, <laughs> white slavery, black slavery, whatever you call it, female slavery, sex trafficking is still very, very much uh, with us alive and kicking. Uh, let me see. I wanted to read you just a little snatch of Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth. 
This is one of his truly bitter, bitter books, uh, uncensored in his time. Let's see, uncensored, this copy. Most of this stuff was not published uh, in his lifetime. <laughs> Here's Mark Twain uh, about God, yes. <laughs> I'll skip the parts about lady goats, yes. He writes, Thou shalt not commit adultery is a command which makes no distinction between the following persons. All these persons are required to obey the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> children at birth, children in the cradle, school children, youths and maidens, fresh adults, older adults, men and women of 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and 100. Uh, the command does not distribute its burden equally and cannot. <laughs> he goes on nonsense. Uh, anyway, uh, let us skip to the part about, uh, yes, the law of God, he said, as quite plainly expressed in woman's construction is this. There shall be no limit put upon your intercourse with the other sex sexually at any time of life. Now, that's what he says should be God's real law. The law of God, as quite plainly expressed, is this. Uh, uh, this is man's point of view. During your entire life, you shall be under inflexible limits and restrictions sexually. That's man's law. God's law is that woman should be free. Uh, <laughs> I think of um, Arundhati Roy. Uh, she calls it the uh, the love laws, who you can love and where and when and how. Uh, She's writing about the untouchables, of course. Uh, Twain goes on to say that during 23 days in every month, in the absence of pregnancy, from the time a woman is seven years old till she dies of old age, she is ready for action and competent. Uh, as competent as the candlestick is to receive the candle. Competent every day, competent every night. Also, she yearns for that candle, longs for it, hankers after it, as commanded by the law of God in her heart. Wow. Anyway, he goes on to say, Man, however, is only briefly competent, and only then in the moderate measure applicable to the word uh, in his sex's case. He is competent from the age of 16 or 17, Thenceforward for 35 years. After 50, his performance is of poor quality. Oops, the intervals between are wide. And its satisfactions of no great value to either party. Whereas his great-grandmother is as good as new. <laughs> There's nothing the matter with her. Her candlestick is as firm as ever, whereas his candle is increasingly softened and weakened by the weather of age as the years go by until at last it can no longer stand and is mournfully laid to rest in the hope of a blessed resurrection which is never to come. Oh, my God, this is under the heading of sexually explicit material. I must stop reading this page. I'm shocked by Mark Twain in the 19th century. Anyway, I'll leave out the rest of the stuff about candles. <laughs> anyway, he goes on to talk about the law of God as revealed in uh, the makeup of woman. Uh, 
He said, what becomes of her high privilege? Does she live in the free enjoyment of it? No, nowhere in the whole world. She's robbed of it everywhere. And who does this? Man. Man statutes, if the Bible is the word of God. Now, there you have a sample of man's reasoning powers, in quotes, uh, as he calls them. He observes certain facts, for instance, that in all his life he never sees the day that he can satisfy one woman, also that no woman ever sees the day that she cannot overwork and defeat and put out of commission any ten masculine plants that can be put to bed to her. He puts those strikingly suggestive and luminous facts together and from them draws this astonishing conclusion that the Creator intended the woman to be restricted to one man. (laughs) And he goes on to write a few paragraphs about the ways in which man uh, turned this singular conclusion into law. This he does without consulting the woman, although she has a thousand times more at stake in the matter than he has. His procreative competency is listed limited to an average of a hundred exercises per year for, say, fifty years. Hers is good for three thousand a year for that whole time, and as many years longer as she may live. Thus, his life interest in the matter (laughs) is five thousand refreshments. Anyway, he goes on measuring and counting here. Once again, this is sexually explicit to the point uh, where I'm not sure we're even allowed Uh, To read it on the air, he goes on to say, Mark Twain, he says, You have heretofore found out by my teachings that man is a fool. You are now aware that woman is a damned fool. Now, if you or any other really intelligent person were arranging the fairnesses and justices between man and woman you would give the man a one-fiftieth interest in one woman. <laughs> that would be as one to fifty, I don't know. You would give the woman a harem, now wouldn't you? Necessarily, I give you my word, this creature with the decrepit candle has arranged it exactly the other way. Solomon, one of the deity's favorites, Uh, had a copulation cabinet composed of 700 wives and 300 concubines. To save his life, he could not have kept two of those young creatures satisfactorily refreshed, even if he had had 15 experts to help him. (laughs) Again, he goes on to uh, measure and count. Uh, He writes, Conceive of a man hard-hearted enough to look daily upon all of that feminine suffering and not be moved to mitigate it. Ah, he even wantonly added a sharp pang to that pathetic misery. He kept within those women's sight always stalwart watchmen whose splendid masculine forms made the poor lassies' mouths water but who hadn't anything to solace them with. These gentry being eunuchs. (laughs) Okay, and he goes on to talk about the Bible. There's a wonderful footnote here that I cannot resist giving you. Uh, In the Sandwich Islands, Mark Twain tells us, in the Sandwich Islands in 1866, 
a buxom royal princess died. Uh, occupying a place of distinguished honor at her funeral were 36 splendidly built young native men. In a laudatory song which celebrated the various merits, achievements, and accomplishments of the late princess, those 36 stallions were called her harem, and the song said it had been her pride and boast that she kept the whole of them busy and that several times it had happened that more than one of them had been able to charge overtime. Anyway, he's having a lot of fun with this, but uh, he's damn serious, and he goes on to deconstruct both the Old and New Testament. Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe next week I'll have time to read you uh, the other the other perspective on women, that of Arthur Schopenhauer, the misogynist. Uh, Mark Twain, of course, was a lover of woman. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Walk in light, light em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Laura Flanders, the superb host of Radio Nation on Air America, is presenting us with a new book, Blue Grit, True Democrats Take Back Politics from the Politicians. Michael Eric Dyson insists that Blue Grit is pure political tonic, a stirring call to arms for progressives who feel they've been left out in the cold by their alleged allies. Other outspoken fans are Chuck D., Eve Ensler, William Greider, and Randy Rhodes. Laura will be in Berkeley on Wednesday evening, April 18th, at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley at 7.30 p.m. Thanks to Cody's books, this will be a benefit for KPFA Radio. The church, wheelchair accessible, is at 2345 Channing Way at Durant, only a few blocks from downtown Berkeley Bar. Tickets are only $5, available at the door and at